Good afternoon. I think we'll go ahead and get started with some of the introductory remarks. My name is uh, Dr. Carol Weisham. I am joined by Dr. Adam Spitz, and we are going to be discussing the individualizing type 2 treatment to address cardiovascular risk and macrovascular complications. Um, I will begin by reviewing some of the data re regarding uh, diabetes and cardiovascular disease as well as some of the newer agents that have been found in clinical trials to lower risk of cardiovascular events. And then Adam will be follow up with a little bit more on how to use the, um, your systems to help identify your patients with diabetes and to improve their macrovascular complication rate. Um, these are my disclosures. So we have all been informed that if we have and make comments that are not on label, that we certainly have to identify them. And it's important for you to know that these uh, presentations were our own presentations and that they have been reviewed by an independent party for fair balance. These are our learning objectives. We want to evaluate cardiovascular outcome data of the available anti-diabetic agents to provide cardiovascular risk reduction. Well, I'm going to spend quite some time talking about some updates to the American Diabetes Association's recommendations for anti-hyperglycemic management of patients with diabetes. We're going to look at some of the clinical trial data regarding the, the effects of some antihyperglycemic therapies, especially the newer ones on the treatment of type 2 diabetes. And then again, Adam is going to be talking about implementing the uh, comprehensive patient-centered treatment strategies uh, based upon the latest evidence and to apply the value-based PCMH, DRP, or DM concepts that support coordinated and multidisciplinary team-based management of type 2 diabetes. All right, so we'll go ahead and get started. So it's no news to anybody here in the room to know that our major concern about costs uh, and frequency of complications in patients with type 2 diabetes is that of macrovascular complications. Uh, about two-thirds of the patients with diabetes will uh, ultimately die from uh, this complication. However, as a person in diabetes for over 30 years, I do not want you to forget about the frequency and the impairment in quality of life that occurs with microvascular complications. And we know that good glycemic control is foundational for decreasing the risk of these complications. We know that diabetes increases risk of cardiovascular disease. Uh, basically, if you look down this list, there's a two to five-fold increased risk of almost all of the uh, uh, cardiovascular complications of patients' diabetes. This does not include peripheral vascular disease and the risk for amputations. But one of the things I want to point out is, number one, when a patient with, with diabetes gets cardiovascular disease, their outcomes are worse. So their risk of a subsequent MI after the first is twofold greater than that of a patient without diabetes. And the other is that heart failure is now the number one presentation for cardiac disease in patients with a di type 2 diabetes. And it's something that we have played very little attention to over time. And I want you to pay more attention to what is coming out about this subject because we need to be applying uh, as much as we can the evidence that we have for improving our patients for appropriate screening, which I don't think we have the answer for, but also appropriate treatment to prevent the very dire consequences of heart failure. 
Now, I want to get this off the table right away, because I know that there are a lot of people who are members of the American College of Physicians. I am. Um, and I guess what I still want to say, despite the fact that they have made a blanket statement that an A1C less than 8% is appropriate for most patients with type 2 diabetes, I think it's really very appropriate to review how the ADA uh, responded to that. And that is to say that they recognize that individualization of glycemic targets is very important. I don't try to get my 80-year-old to an A1C of less than 7%. But I also have an extremely large number of patients in my practice who are 40 with their new diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. And I would feel it would be malpractice to subject them to 40 years of hyperglycemia because you didn't think it was worth trying to get their glucose levels lower. So both the ADA and the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists have their targets, and you can argue about whether it be seven or less than six and a half. I happen to abide by the evidence base of the ADA. And you could, but you also need to know that they both adhere to the importance of individualization. And I kind of say a little bit tongue-in-cheek that my A1C target for a patient once they hit 70, assuming they have no complications, is their age divided by 10. And you know, you can say, well, you know, actually that kind of works pretty well. You get up into the 90s and you probably don't need it much greater than less than nine and keep them asymptomatic. But the reality is, is we generally try to get the best A1C we can safely get our patients to without undue burden of the treatment to them. Now, this is an American Diabetes Association recommendation for antihyperglycemic therapy in 2017. It was much like the one in 2015, and that is you start with diet and exercise metformin, and then you have one of six agents that you can choose. And something I just learned is that these were ranked according to when they became approved by the FDA for treatment. So nothing says that there's any ranking here, and that created a lot of a lot of confusion in the part of primary care is how do I make the decision about how to use these agents, which one is best? So in 2018, there was one step forward, and that is they basically continued to say lifestyle, metformin is foundation, but if the patient failed to achieve glycemic control with metformin, the first thing you do is you ask, do they have ASDVD? And the answer is yes then you use an agent proven to reduce the cardiovascular events in patients with diabetes, and if no, then you use one of the six agents that we previously reviewed. One of the things they did add over the 2017 was the importance of a patient-centered approach for, to use to guide the choice of pharmacologic agents, and consider, considerations include efficacy, hypoglycemia risk, the history of SCVD, the impact on weight, potential side effects, renal effects, delivery method cost, and patient preferences. And I think missing in all of this is this newly recognized uh, complication associated with diabetes, and that is uh, fatty liver disease and the fact that we can use uh, evidence base to um, be more effectively treating those patients. So if we look at all of the cardiovascular outcome trials that were mandated by the FDA since 2008, remember the primary endpoint of all these studies is to prove that the drug is safe, not to prove that it reduces cardiovascular events. And these are all of the outcome trials that have been done up to date. And we're just gonna start with 
the DPP-4 inhibitors, of which three have presented, they were all neutral. Now, there was one standout on this study, and that is that the Saxagliftin study, called the SAVER study, was associated with a 27% increased risk for hospitalization for heart failure. And this was statistically significantly different. Allogliptin had a signal that was not significantly different. Uh, uh, Citagliptin had no signal for increased risk of heart failure. Despite that, the FDA has a warning about potential heart failure risk with DPP-4 inhibitors, so should be aware of that, especially in your patients with established um, uh, heart failure. So we're going to be talking about two classes of drugs that have been found to have beneficial effects, the first of which are the GLP-1 receptor agonists. So just as a matter to make sure that everybody in the audience understands what we're talking about, GLP-1 is one of the hormones called the incretin hormones. These are hormones made by the gut in response to eating that have an effect to stimulate insulin secretion. They suppress another hormone that raises glucose called glucagon. They also have an impact on slowing gastric emptying, so blood sugar doesn't get absorbed or the carbohydrates don't get absorbed as quickly, and finally has an impact on appetite, so it causes the patients to eat less food. So all of these have been, um, these attributes have been uh, found in multiple different medications that have been approved by the FDA, and these are shown here. We have one medication that is approved as a twice-daily injection, exenatide, two that are approved as a once-daily injection, loraglutide and lixacenatide, and now four or five, depending on how you count it, that are approved for, um, uh, I guess there's four, I can't count very well up here, um, for weekly injections. Now, albiglutide, which previously was available, has been discontinued by the manufacturer, and most of your patients, if on it, will have been trans, uh, transitioned to another agent. Dilaglutide, exenatide once weekly, and semaglutide once weekly are all medications that can be given at any time of the day and have the advantages of covering both fasting as well as postprandial glucose as well. That is in opposition to the twice-daily exenatide or even the once-daily lixacinatide, which are primarily affecting the postprandial glucose. I like to think of them as like the, the regular insulin uh, or the regular of um, the uh, GLP-1 receptor agonists, kind of like the regular insulin is faster than the basal insulins. Now, these are older slides, and I will just uh, read, kind of walk you through. I can't, unfortunately, go over every study, but really what I want to focus is on is the add-on to metformin, a part of this slide. And if you cancel out the blue, which is albiglutide, no longer available, and then you also cancel out the green ones, which are the short-acting um, uh, GLP-1 receptor agonists, focusing on the purple, orange, and yellow. Those are our once-weekly, long-acting uh, GLP-1 receptor agonists. And what you can see is that the A1C reduction is fairly similar. Somewhere, I would say, between 1.2, 1.5% when you add it on top of metformin. Compare that to um, sulfonylurea, and although there's a lot of variability in that particular um, part of the slide, it seems like the A1C reduction may not be, on average, as great. Similarly, if we look at weight, focusing on add-on to metformin, you can see, if you remember one thing, 
the, the A1C reduction, one, two to one, five, the, um, the reduction in weight of being around three kilograms. And again, I think most importantly, when you focus on the uh, effects of add-on to sulfonylureas, the weight gain is, or weight loss, I'm sorry, is clearly less. And this is key, depending upon where you use these agents, how you counsel your patients on the effect of expected weight reduction. The same sustained seven, which is looking at the comparison of semaglutide to dilaglutide. Semaglutide is the newest of the once weekly available. And if you can remember what I said about the others, the 1.8% reduction is greater than what we've seen with the other agents. Similarly, remember I said about three kilograms, it appears as if the weight reduction is greater than the other GLP-1, certainly greater in the comparison to dilaglutide. So if we look at the approved GLP-1 receptor analogs with proven benefit, we have the leader trial with liraglutide had a positive outcome, a 13% reduction in MACE, major adverse cardiovascular events. These are made up of the death from cardiovascular disease, non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke. So reduction overall, when added on top of aggressive statin, aggressive blood pressure control, use of aspirin, et cetera. When you look at the other breakdown that they looked at, there wasn't a significant reduction in heart failure. There was a significant reduction in CV mortality and in all-cause mortality. Semaglutide or sustained six did a small short-term study, and they showed a 26% reduction in that three-point MACE, but no change in heart failure, no change in CV mortality, no change in all-cause mortality. This was primarily driven by a reduction in myocardial infarctions. So of these two, only liraglutide has FDA indication for reduction of major cardiovascular events in patients with type 2 diabetes and established cardiovascular disease. So what about GLP-1 receptor agonists risks and benefits? Well, the benefits are they lower glucose effectively, have low rates of hypoglycemia, they have the impact on appetite, which results in a decrease in weight and waist circumference, associated with a modest reduction in blood pressure, modest improvement in lipids, improved renal outcomes as shown in both the liraglutide as well as the semaglutide long-term studies, and of course, the two agents I just reviewed have a reduction in the three-point MACE. The risks are the GI side effects, which vary dramatically on the different agent used and the way that it's titrated. They can get dehydrated if they get severe nausea and vomiting, which can result in acute kidney injury. There's this very, very questionable association with pancreatitis that was not seen in the long-term clinical trials with either agent. Uh, medullary cancer of the thyroid is seen in, in rats, but has not been seen in humans. And then in the semaglutide study, the patients that had dramatically rapid improvement in their glucose levels appeared to have a risk of short-term progression in their retinopathy. And this is something that we saw way back when in the type 1 studies when we took patients from 10 to 7 rapidly. They would have a temporary worsening of their retinopathy before they began to see the benefit. So moving on to the SGLT2 inhibitors, this is a cartoon of the nephron. 
And if you look at the glomerulus, which is where all the business happens with filtration, as blood comes through the glomerulus, 100% of the glucose is filtered into the urinary filtrate. There are receptors called SGLT2 and SGLT1 receptors that are responsible for absorbing all of that glucose back into the systemic circulation. SGLT2 responsible for 90%, SGLT1 for the remaining 10%. And in normal individuals with glucose levels under 180, um, they will have no glucose in the urine. But if we block these receptors, and in the case of what we're gonna be talking about is the SGLT2 transporter receptor blockers, we can block a percentage of the glucose reabsorption that goes back into the bloodstream, and that appears in the urine. That takes glucose out of the systemic circulation where it reduces risk of uh, microvascular complications, including uh, kidney disease. So again, an older slide, missing the newest um, of the agents, looking at the uh, glucose control with SGLT2 inhibitors. Again, really focusing on the center, because that's where we're gonna be using it most. You can see that canagliflozin has, in general, a greater A1C reduction than the other two. Now, these are not head-to-head -head studies, but a network meta-analysis did uh, confirm that appearance that uh, canagliflozin may be more uh, have greater uh, glycemic uh, efficacy. Um, if you remember, again, the weight reduction, again, you're looking at about three kilograms of weight reduction when added onto uh, metformin. The newest of the SGLT2 inhibitors are urticlofloxin, and this is just one study just showing A1C reduction at the highest dose of about 0.9% and the reduction in weight of about 1.7 kilograms. So in, in the same uh, range as the other agents. Now, only two of the cardiovascular outcome trials have been uh, reported with the SGLT2 inhibitors, and that's empagliflozin and canagliflozin. And what you can see with empagliflozin is, again, their primary endpoint of three-point MACE reduction was positive and statistically significantly different at 14%. What really got our attention when they presented this data is the reduction heart fa failure hospitalization of 35%, reduction in CV mortality of 38%, and a reduction of total mortality of 32%. Canagliflozin in the Canvas uh, program presented their data a couple of years ago. They showed, again, similar reduction in three-point MACE, similar reduction in heart, heart failure hospitalization, but a non-significant reduction in CV mortality or total mortality. The important caveat about the differences between these studies is that the CANVAS trial had a significant proportion. About a third of the patients did not have cardiovascular disease. They just had high risk, whereas the empagliflozin study, essentially 100% of them had established cardiovascular disease. So, you, you know, there's differences in studies and there are differences in other ways, other aspects of these um, different studies that it could explain the differences in outcome but I think it's important that the primary endpoint of three-point MACE, which is what most cardiology studies measure, uh, was dissimilar between the two agents. But at this point, only empagliflozin has the FDA indication, and its indication is, is interesting, because it's not even a primary endpoint of the study, but it was death from cardiovascular disease. So it is approved for reduction of death from cardiovascular disease in patients with type 2 diabetes and established CV disease. 
Now, Canvas did report a two-fold increase in amputation rate that was seen. It was primarily seen in patients with peripheral vascular disease. Um, what they basically showed was no increased risk of developing a foot ulcer, no increased risk of developing a foot infection, but if a patient developed one of those while on the drug, there was an impairment in healing from that. So that's important messages. Now, the benefits of the um, SGLT2 inhibitors is that you can use it along the whole continuum of patients with diabetes because it doesn't require insulin to work. It has low hypoglycemic rates unless you're adding it on top of insulin or sulfonylureas. We saw the reduction in weight, has a modest reduction in blood pressure. It's been shown to decrease protein excretion in the urine and also has been shown to reduce risk of progression of kidney diseases. Has a small decrease in triglyceride but a slight increase in LDL cholesterol that's important. And empagliflozin, we saw the reduction in, in uh, MACE and CHF. The risks, gentle mycotic infections, including a recent report of a severe necrotizing infection of the genitals that has been reported in 12 patients out of more than 2 million patients that have been um, um, taking these medications. It's important to realize that diabetes is one of the prime risk factors for this kind of infection, and it is not a cause and effect. It's just reports to the FDA. Urinary tract infections, uh, the data is very variable as far as whether they're increased, but it is in the label. Diabetic ketoacidosis is a risk, particularly those patients with longstanding diabetes, but almost all of them had a, uh, had a triggering effect. I think it's important, again, very, very low risk, one in 3,000 patients or so. Polyuria and dehydration and decrease in uh, renal blood flow, dizziness, hypotension, very, very significant risk because you're causing diuresis. There's a small increase in hemoglobin hematocrit, small increase in LDL, and then canagle flows when we talked about amputations, but also had a slight increased risk of fractures. So again, of all the CV trials that have been done, most were neutral. I've shown you the four that were positive with um, liraglutide, semaglutide, empagliflozin, and canagliflozin. So I showed you this slide already. I want to give you a little insight into where it, we're going. So this is going to probably be a, a, a presented in its last, uh, or not last draft, but final um, next month at the European Diabetes Meeting. And like the last one, again, metformin and lifestyle foundational. Uh, but again, like the last one, you asked, does a patient have established cardiovascular disease or heart failure? If they have established cardiovascular disease, you would start them on either a GLP-1 receptor agonist or an SGLT-2 inhibitor. And if need be, you would, if possible, add the alternate if they um, need additional therapy. If they have heart failure, they recommend that you start with an SGLT-2 inhibitor, assuming that the uh, kidney uh, function does allow. They do suggest that you could add a GLP-1 receptor agonist, but I showed you the data. They did not, neither of them have been shown to reduce heart failure risk. And then most importantly, you would want to avoid a TZD in this setting. But more importantly, what do you do when they don't have cardiovascular disease? Well, this is something that I think is really helpful. You can take your patient's personal situation, their values, what they're concerned about, and you can put them into silos. If you want to avoid hypoglycemia, you can use SGLT2 inhibitors, GLP-1 receptor agonists, TCDs, or DPP-4 inhibitors. And if they need additional treatment, you would just add the, uh, one of the others. With the caveat is there's no indication for a DPP-4 and a GLP-1 together. 
if you need to address weight loss, and who in our patients doesn't, you would really focus on SGLT2 inhibitors or GLP-1 receptor agonists. And more importantly, most importantly these days, if cost is an issue, a sulfonylurea or a TZD would be your first agent. And if, you're, uh, if they need additional control, you'd add the opposite. And then finally, if that fails to achieve good glycemic control, you would add NPH insulin. And so that is a really important um, you know, caveat and a really good message for us on how to uh, get good glycemic control while minimizing the cost of therapy. So we've done a great job at reducing myocardial infarction uh, risk in patients with and without diabetes. Patients without diabetes have had a 32% reduction over the course of the last 20 years, whereas patients with diabetes have had a 67.8% reduction in myocardial infarction. Now, I have to tell you that I have no, con no uh, concept that this is related to glycemic control. This is LDL cholesterol. This is all the things that you folks are doing every day, improving blood pressure, getting them on aspirin, going through your, um, your databases, making sure patients have had appropriate preventive care. But it is important, again, to know that we now have, on top of standard of care, two agents that have been proved, uh, re proved to reduce risk of cardiovascular disease. And again, use an individualized approach in trying to decide which of these agents to use. If heart failure, choose an SGLT2 inhibitor. If you have renal disease that precludes use of an SGLT2 inhibitor, use loragotide. And I want to thank you, and I'll pass the uh, program over to Adam. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. <clears throat> what I'm going to talk about today is how we utilize the concepts of patient-centered medical home, specialty practice, um, ABA guidelines, and population health to improve the care of our individual patients with diabetes as well as our populations with diabetes. Um, this is my disclosure. Uh, <clears throat> of course, we've been informed and reviewed to make sure that this is fair and balanced. So you all know this. Huge burden of diabetes, 30 million Americans, almost 10% of the population. More than twice that number has prediabetes, so the future can be tough. The $245 billion a year, you've all heard that figure most likely, that's actually a few years old. We're actually more like about $300 million a year, and much of that money is being spent on cardiac and renal complications. This is a very expensive disease. Our patients with diabetes need comprehensive care, and often they need that care in a hurry. These are some of the challenges that we face, and I'm going to give you the point of view of a practitioner, not the point of view of a population health specialist. I'm going to give you a real feel for what I deal with every day. Uh, resource availability is huge. Cost of care is huge. Fragmentation is why we're here. That's the whole concept of patient-centered medical home is to lessen fragmentation. Um, the majority of these 30 million persons with diabetes are being cared for by PCPs, and many of them may not be up to date on the latest guidelines. Data management is a tremendous challenge. There is a lot of data, primary care, specialist care, um, wound center, eye doctor, and you've got to somehow get all of that coordinated. There's a shortage of specialists. There's a shortage of endocrinologists, and that's not changing. Um, patients taking ownership, I want to stress that. Don't use the phrase like non-compliance. Very often, it's a matter of us providing them with the tools that they need, the education, the skills, 
the resources that they may or may not have. And we need to develop a trust. And so as a result of all of this, despite the good news that you just heard, many of our persons with diabetes are not meeting their glucose, blood pressure, or lipid targets. We need to do better. Now, many of you here in the audience are much more familiar with these acronyms than I am. This is what it looks like to me. Okay? So, again, I'm going to give you the perspective of somebody who's down there in the trenches. So let's go by way of example. A primary care provider will contact me and say, or send, put a consult in through our electronic record system, you need to see this diabetic urgently. So how do I handle that on the individual patient level? And how do we handle it as a practice um, on the population level and as a healthcare system? So here's our primary care provider. Um, a little bit freaked out uh, because there's a patient in front of he or she with a blood sugar of 400. So the first thing we do is we have a referral agreement. And if you, you all were there uh, yesterday when we presented this, you have an idea of what this is. This is a standardization of workflow and of definitions and of responsibilities. So within our system, the referring provider has a choice, routine, emergency, or urgent. And we define what those different uh, levels of urgency mean. And that's their responsibility, to triage that. Um, we also have something called open access, where a patient can actually schedule their own um, new patient visit with us without having to get a consultation. And then the other thing that we do in the referral agreement is we close the loop. The complexity of care for these persons is astronomical. And it's very easy for things to fall through a crack. So when we come up with assessment and plan, I'm going to say very specifically, Dr. So-and-so, please handle this. I will handle this. I am referring to the diabetes educators to handle this. It's got to be very clear who's doing what. And if you're within the same healthcare system, it makes the patient feel much more confident in your level of, in, in the care that they are getting if they know that everybody is working together. And just a reminder, even though we're going to talk about all the technology, the good old telephone does sometimes work. Uh, and if I've got, if I get a phone call, I may get a call that says, Adam, yeah, I put this consult in, but this patient's blood sugar is wildly out of control. She might be pregnant. And I'll be like, okay, send her straight over. We'll figure it out. Don't even look at the schedule. I'm like, all right, we've got a few providers here. We'll figure it out. We'll see her today. Um, because we have electronic medical record, we can track this. We can track how we're doing at a practice level, how the system is doing, and we can set goals for ourselves and try to do better over time. So we have something um, at Novant Health called the Human Experience Innovation. And why do we have this? Um, the picture you're seeing there is a typical patient who's been referred to me. The fact that that patient has been referred to a diabetes specialist terrifies the crap out of them because they're like, oh my God, now I realize things are bad. And then they think about their cousin who had an amputation um, or their uncle who, who has congestive heart failure and died a miserable death. So they're scared. Um, they come to us scared, and that's not a good way to start a relationship. So we do welcome letters. Um, it's not BS. It's not just, oh, hi, welcome to the practice. It's very important in that letter, we let the patient know that we are working with the primary care provider. And the reason for that is they're, they're vulnerable. They feel vulnerable, and they want to know that we are coordinating the care, that we're communicating with each other. Now, 
Our front desk has the 10-5 rule. We want to really humanize them because they feel so scared. So when they walk through that door, 10 feet away, I see you. That's the person at the front desk. Five feet away, hello, welcome to Novon Health Endocrinology. That gets everything off on the right foot right from the get-go. The remarkable rooming experience, this is huge. I am blessed with the best medical assistant on the planet, Ren. She is so amazing. I get in the room, and the first thing that patient says is, you have an amazing assistant, Dr. Spitz. She gets them in a good mood. But in addition to that, uh, our manager, Amber, has worked with our um, <clears throat> human experience people to standardize what they do. This is not random. Uh, Ren's attitude is what makes her great, but what she does when she puts the person in the room is actually standardized across the healthcare system. Anybody ever here, uh, here ever have McDonald's french fries and have a bad experience? They're pretty good, and they're pretty good whether you have it in San Diego or you have it in Charlotte. That's because they standardize how this is done, and we're trying to do the same thing with our rooming experience. Um, how many people here have been to a doctor's office and you're in the waiting room, someone opens the door to, to the interior of the office and says, Art Vandelay, and you're Art Vandelay, and you feel like you want to crawl into a hole. Right? Come on. Some, someone say, yes, I, I know what that feels like. You've got a few people smiling. So what we do is we have a picture on the chart. And so Ren goes out into the hallway, um, into, the, into the waiting area, introduces herself. So, Are you so-and-so? We use the red rule with dates of birth and things like that, and then brings that patient back. That's Ren. Um, uh, she doesn't always dress like this. Um, this was wacky day in our office. And, um, but that just shows you what a great attitude she has. We have virtual video interpreters. Um, so we can handle 200 plus languages, including Klingon. Um, we have a baby changing station. So we got this from patient suggestions. We want to get feedback from our patients. And again, this is part of the patient experience. And this is just as important as the data that you just heard. That patient has to be a team member with you if they are going to succeed. Um, the warm handoff. We don't say go down the hall, make a right, and look for the sign that says lab. We walk them over to the lab. Now, certain things here you will see are in bold print. Those are the things that require interpersonal experience. All right, someone from our staff interacting with that patient. And I would say that those are the most important aspects of the um, patient-centered medical experience. All right, so how do we strive for this excellence? How do, we, how do we find it, how do we achieve it, and how do we follow it? Um, we do survey data with Press Ganey. We have our suggestion box, which is how we figured out the, the baby changing station. Um, teamwork, this is absolutely huge. Your staff has to feel invested. They have to know, of course, what their roles are, what their workflow is, but they have to feel that they are part of this team, that the success uh, for our patients involves them, not just us. We have daily huddles where we discuss the issues of the day. Um, team meetings occur monthly where we cover some of the larger issues. Uh, we have provider meetings every other week. Uh, we like to point out the positives. We have things like employee of the month, but one of the things that I like is if one of our team members does an amazing job and really kind of goes above 100%, I'll make sure I tell Amber. And then Amber will usually tell that team member, and they just feel awfully good about themselves. Um, you always want to point out the positives. If something doesn't go right, you look at the process, and then you work with people to do it better. 
Um, this is part, you know, you're saying, well, what does that have to do with diabetes? It has a lot to do with diabetes. It's the patient experience that is going to determine how well they do. Um, we are doing much better now with triage than we used to. We did not standardize our care. We had hundreds of uh, pending calls that weren't being addressed, thousands of open um, email and other uh, issues like approvals for things. So now we have different levels of staff who have very clear job descriptions and the idea here is to make sure that whatever it is, a pharmacy benefit manager, a prior authorization, patient phone call, that these things are handled in a timely manner. Um, here's our uh, Cracker Jack staff right here, uh, also on Wacky Day. Um, <clears throat> we have a Novant Health Optimization team. They're going to look at everything that I'm talking about from the moment the patient steps through our door to the moment they leave and look at our process and make sure we're doing a good job. Uh, so this all occurs before I even get to see the patient. So finally, I do get to see the patient. This is a typical overweight type 2 diabetic who is not taken kindly to my statement that he has to drink less beer and eat less fatty food. Um, so, you know, it, it's a tough go. Uh, this is what I have to do at the initial encounter uh, for comprehensive diabetes care. Um, of course, I have to assess their level of control, but I want to assess their skill level, what their barriers to care are. Um, I want to look at their complications very early on. Does this person uh, have lack of feeling in their feet? Um, do they have vascular disease or are they at very high risk or kidney disease? And once we do all of that, and then I do my exam, we come up with goals and we come up with a plan and we're very specific about that. One of the things we do <clears throat> is ask three teach back. So once I do a plan, I'm going to print instructions out on the after visit summary and give that to the patient and we're going to discuss it. And then S3 Teachback is myself or, or, or one of my colleagues saying, what is your main problem and what are you going to do? Why is this important? And you'd be surprised how you think you're being clear with the patient and then they're not, still not clear. So if they can say it back to you properly, you know they get it and if they can't, you know you have to spend a little bit more time. Um, I think we heard a little bit already, so I'm not going to talk too much about goals. The main thing is um, you have to individualize goals. You want to be more aggressive in younger people who have um, a higher projected lifespan. You want to be less aggressive with much older patients who have higher comorbidities. Not every older patient, but certainly somebody who has got heart failure and a stroke, you're going to be less aggressive with. And you want to look very hard at hypoglycemia risk and morbidity from hypoglycemia. If you're dealing with a patient who is at a higher risk of dying if they have a low blood sugar, you're going to be, you're going to back off a little bit. Um, you're going to prioritize. So for instance, complication screening and cardiovascular risk reduction, that's going to be at the first visit. You're going to consider individual circumstances and needs. All right? Uh, PCMH, remember, patient-centered is at the beginning of that. So I'm going to give you an example. I see a lot, a lot, a lot of type 1s. I've got a lot of patients on insulin pumps. And I've got one patient who is separating from her husband. She's got two young children. She's holding down two jobs to pay the bills. Um, her A1C's in the mid to upper 7s. She's only doing one or two finger sticks a day, but she's not having frequent or severe lows. Um, when she comes in, I know I'm doing bad, she says. Well, I try to turn that around. I say, you know what? Your diabetes control isn't that bad. You're not having frequent or severe lows. I'd love it if you could, you know, give me two finger sticks a day, but you know what? 
you're doing really good for right now. And I call this the treading water strategy. I say, let's, let's just do as good as we can do for now, within reason, and then when, when life is a little more stable, then we'll try to push a little bit harder. It's very important that the patient not leave your office feeling like a failure. Right? You've got to find a positive in something. All right, so now we move on to the team approach, collaborative care. And as you can see, the patient is at the center of that. So I think I've already discussed myself and the primary care provider. Well, we've got the diabetes educator, the pharmacist. We've got other specialists like wound care people, cardiologists, eye doctors. Um, mental health and social workers, that is absolutely huge. Diabetes is a massive burden. And if you've got somebody who's already got other burdens, hugely stressful life, um, you throw diabetes into that mix, it, it can be just overwhelming. So you need to have access to social workers who can help that patient navigate the system and perhaps hook them up with um, a therapist if need be, or send them back to the primary care provider if that patient has depression. Every one of our diabetics is screened for depression every time we see them. So diabetes self-management training, otherwise called diabetes education. These are the ADA 2018 standards of care, obviously content and skills, but we look for behavioral strategies. We want to address the psychosocial concerns. Food insecurity is much more common than you guys realize. Uh, we want to work with them on strategies for problem solving. And these strategies have been shown to improve outcomes, to improve cost, and to improve patient satisfaction. This is a quote from the head of our department for diabetes education in Charlotte, Kathy Thomas. I love this. When people understand what's going on with their body, they are much more likely to do the things that help control their diabetes. We take the time to explain in detail and help them work through the emotional issues that are holding them back. And we can help them to see behavior changes as doable. Um, it always amazes me when I get a consult and the patient hasn't seen the diabetes educators. That's the first stop before you send the patient to an endocrinologist is they need to work with the educators. Um, this doesn't exist in a vacuum. The American Diabetes Association has a recognition program, and we are ADA recognized. One of the components is to collect data. So we do a questionnaire before they undergo uh, the self-management training. And it's mostly things addressing how comfortable they are, how confident they are with their skills. Uh, on various different levels. Now to the left, in, uh, under the black rows, is I don't feel confident, I don't have the skills. To the right is I'm confident and I have the skills. And as you can see, most of the responses are to the left. After they have the diabetes education, we administer the same questionnaire. And as you can see now, most of the responses are to the right. The patients not only have the skills, but they feel confident that they can apply those skills. While all of this is going on, I'm involving other members of the team. So we have something called care uh, coordinates. And if I'm not sure what drug within a certain drug category is going to be covered, so you heard about, for instance, uh, SGLT2s and GLP1s. Well, what's going to be covered by the insurer? We may or may not get that on the computer system. So I will ask the pharmacist to help out. The cost of the, cost of the drug is high. What, um, what uh, resources does the patient have to lower that cost? Um, if there are insurance issues, if there are social issues, I'm going to get the social worker involved and they'll see what community resources are available. And if there's a complicated plan, you know, it's like goodbye, see you in two months. What I'm going to do is I'm going to put in uh, a consult request 
with uh, our diabetes care coordinator nurse. And what they're going to do, well, they'll do what I ask them to do, but usually what I ask them to do is I'll say, look at my plan, please call the patient in a week and make sure that they understand it and that they're following it. Um, <clears throat> so let's get into some of the more uh, technical stuff, which is very fascinating, is how do we manage the information? So health information technology in the context of our patients with diabetes. So you've heard about uh, all the different components of this uh, in the blue. And then we also have things like outside records. About a third of our patients come from outside of the Novant system, and that can be very challenging. Uh, we get information from pharmacies, and unfortunately, that comes in over faxes. Patient messages, thankfully, that often comes in over the uh, record system. And then we often get outside labs. We have to integrate all of that in a meaningful way in the electronic health record. It's very challenging. Um, this is what EMR looked like to me when it first started. Um, <clears throat> but over time, uh, I, I began to embrace the evil and, and, and love uh, EMR. So here's how we utilize this with our diabetic patients at the individual and population level. This is one patient. So um, what you see here is in the blue, hemoglobin A1C, in the purple, weight. And this is five years worth of data. And I'm going to go over this with the patient. I'm going to take the screen and turn it so we can both see it. I want to engage the patient in this. And I'm going to ask them, I'm going to say, you know what? Here's 2014. Your A1C was in the upper sixes. Your weight was down. What was so great about 2014? So it's important that you use this information and technology with the patient, engage them in their care. Now, this is population data. This is our practice. Green is good, red is bad. There's a lot of red here. Um, we're a specialty practice, so obviously we see people with higher A1Cs. We also see patients from outside our health system, which means we often don't get their eye exams or urine proteins. So we can look at this and say, hmm, we got to do a better job. Either these patients are not getting their urine protein screened, or we're not documenting the labs that are being faxed over, because if it's faxed over and we put it in the record, that doesn't count. We have to enter it into the best practice section to show that we've actually addressed this. Um, eye exams. Uh, this one looks very poor. I can assure you, more than half these patients that allegedly have not had eye exams, more than half of them have had eye exams. The problem is the ophthalmology practices are not hooked into our record system, and we may not get the reports. Or the reports went back to the primary, who's not in Novant. So these are some of the challenges that we face and that you face as a healthcare system. And this is going to be tied into your reimbursement. Um, <clears throat> how do we use these uh, pieces of data for advanced payment models? So you guys know that uh, this is going to impact how much you get paid, right, for Medicare. So you've got to get on the stick with this. So Part of the problem is going to be how we're going to deal with specialists. We're dealing with the sickest patients. So we don't want to be penalized for that. Um, so here is an example of how we use uh, health information technology with one of my patients. So this is her finger sticks. So I might talk to her and say, you know what? You're having some lows here. What's going on? Uh, are, are you feeling them? This is her sensor data. And as you can see, this is a really well-controlled patient. She's pregnant, actually. But I'm turning the screen so she can look at it. And her average overnight is 100. And I'm going to say, oh, you know, we'd love to nudge that down. The ADA says we should try to get below 90 overnight. She's not having a lot of lows here. So we can make some changes together. 
and sometimes those changes may scare the patient, so we'll compromise. Again, patient-centered care. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that we do, where, where the test practice for our healthcare system is we are putting that data directly into Epic through a, a program called Highland. And I don't mean to imply it works great, it doesn't, but, but we're trying. First of all, we're trying to be green. Because if you look at, and in practice, let's say with five, six, seven providers, all the downloads that you do, and they're all anywhere from 10 to 25 pages, you've got a stack like this of paper you've wasted. So we're trying to download directly into Epic, and that's much more efficient. You don't have to scan things, and it's more green, and you can show it to the patient while you're there um, with the patient in front of you. Um, so I think we talked about engaging the patient. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about value-based care model and how we utilize that in our practice. Um, so this has all the acronyms that you've heard of. It all started in 2015 with the passage of MACRA. And um, there are some core components that you need to address. Quality, uh, using uh, EHR, uh, resource utilization, so cost of care is going to come into play. And then ultimately practice improvements, how you make changes based on the deficiencies that you have. So on the population health model, this is where you can hit the low-hanging fruit. So what we do at Novant is these care coordinates that I mentioned before, they're going to look at um, criteria based on HEDIS. So they're going to look things like high A1Cs or hasn't had an eye exam, hasn't had a foot exam, and they're going to contact those patients. They can make direct referrals to an ophthalmologist or they can uh, contact the primary care provider and say, hey, make an appointment, get that patient in. She hasn't had her foot exam. She hasn't had her urine protein checked. And at the uh, Joslin Center for Diabetes, they showed that if you use that risk stratification model and you mine the data and you hit the highest risk patients, you can actually lower the cost of care and improve the level of care overall. And that is what we're trying to do as a healthcare system. So, We've talked about how technology is great. Um, this is some of the technology that our patients wear. Uh, that's an insulin pump. Above the insulin pump, um, by the ribs there, that's a glucose sensor. And actually, more of our type 2s are wearing those. Medicare covers Dexcom now. Um, there's a much, more exp much less expensive one called Libre that a lot of our patients are wearing. And of course, we've got our health information technology. The problem is they don't always communicate so well. So data integration is one of the challenges that we are working on. Um, using that data to identify higher risk patients, we're starting to do that. We're trying to be proactive so we can find patients who maybe have a positive urine protein, but they don't have renal failure yet. We'll get on them, get their blood pressures down, get their blood sugars down, get them on an ACE inhibitor or ARB to prevent the end stage complication. So we want to be proactive. Um, you need to recognize that not all of your patients are tech savvy and you still do need the human touch, the human voice with many of them. So for those who, who use email, we have the secure patient portal. We call that MyChart. And uh, a big feather in our cap is that we've got 80-something percent of our patients are on MyChart. That's huge. And, it's a gr and our patients love it because they don't have to go through the wacky phone system. Um, obviously, send messages, but there's much more with diabetes management. We can enter data in my chart into a glucose flow sheet. We can do d downloads directly in my chart. So here's an example. So this is the my chart glucose flow sheet. This, look just, this looks just like a logbook, 
And that's the point. And one of the things that I can do is I can use the computer to prompt myself to check it every week. And then if no data is entered, I can contact the patient and say, enter the data, what's wrong? And sometimes you find out things you, you never dreamed of. Oh, I'm not checking. I lost my insurance. So this is a good way to keep up with your patients. Um, this is email data. I want to give a, um, a shout out to my patient. Uh, her name is Gina. She's been my patient for 20 years. And there were so many challenges when we first got onto EMR that integrating diabetes data wasn't at the top of the list. And I kept bugging the, the physician leaders with this, and they are great. Dr. Alexanian, Dr. Connolly are wonderful, but it was not high up on the list some years back. And so Gina figured out how to download her pump and sensor at home, which we already knew, um, but then she figured out how to convert that data into a PDF and then attach it to a MyChart message. And, and she sells Mary Kay. So for all those um, six-figure uh, highfalutin IT, physician IT leaders, this woman sells Mary Kay, and she figured this out. So, so this is a download of a sensor. This is basically a virtual visit. All right, our patients don't have time to come back four weeks later after we've made a change. The co-pays are often humongous. I'm a specialist. I don't understand why if insurers don't charge a patient a copay to see an obstetrician if it's a, if it's a woman, why should they charge a type 1 diabetic a copay to see me? But that's the way it is. So this is a virtual visit. And I'm going to look at this, and I'm going to say, hmm, what's going on here at like 11 o'clock at night, Gina? And we'll, we'll do it over um, the electronic record system, and then we'll make some changes. And all of this is completely within the patient's chart. It's documented. And that's really, really important. Because first of all, um, you can actually bill for interpreting a sensor download, and insurance usually covers it. You gotta have that documentation. Otherwise, you're, you know, you're screwed. Um, so, and more important, when I see her again, I'm gonna wanna know what happened. And I, I'm not gonna remember everything. So, the bottom line here, is that if we applied diabetes standards of care, if we applied the components of patient-centered medical home, patient-centered specialty practice, we can do a team-oriented approach with the patient at the center of that team. We can improve the diabetes care of that patient. We can improve the diabetes care of the population. We can improve their overall health, and we can lower costs. Thank you very much. All right. And, okay, and I think that brings us to our conclusion. Thank you very much for your attention, and we'll take your questions. Uh, okay. We have time for questions. Well, uh, we'll, be, we'll be here, yes. Thank you for the presentation. Uh, would you or your colleagues be able to answer how you got 80% of people on my chart? Uh, Amber? Come on, Amber. Uh, at the time of check-in, our patients are given an access code by our clerical team members. And then they're either A, um, a lot of times we are having them when they're waiting in exam rooms, we can have the patient sign up for my chart um, right there while they're waiting to see their physician. So we just really push that. And I've even, we've even thought about um, putting a laptop out front that's secure so that, so that way patients, as soon as they can check in, we can direct them to sign up for my chart. I think it has a system. I, I, th I think everybody I has experienced how crappy yeah, it is to call a doctor's office. And, um, it really, from my perspective, I push the patients, and I just say, look, yeah. you know, 
I mean, this is so much better. You can email me directly. You don't have to go through the phone system, and it doesn't take too much on system. I just don't Ethan take no for an system answer. higher than 80%. I don't know the exact number, but I know as a system, they, there's a lot of um, functionalities that they do as soon as the patients check in. Well, thank you very much. I know we've kind of hit our time limit here, and uh, we're actually we finished exactly on time.